Welcome to Music History Monday for September 5th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Fire. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the premiere on September 5th, 1913, 109 years ago today, of Sergei Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 2. Prokofiev, 1891-1953, composed the piece while still a student at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. It was completed in April of 1913. And for our information, Prokofiev still had another year to go at the conservatory. He didn't graduate until May of 1914. The concerto received its premiere 109 years ago today at the Vauxhall at Pavlovsk. Pavlovsk being a sprawling imperial palace, park, garden, and summertime concert venue some 19 miles south of St. Petersburg. The orchestra was conducted by Alexander Aslanov, who for many years led the summer concert series there at Pavlovsk. The piano solo, with its spectacularly difficult piano part, was performed by the then 22-year-old Prokofiev himself. That premiere provoked quite an uproar from the audience. That uproar will be discussed at length in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, which will be built around Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 2. For now, we're going to talk about what happened to the actual score of Prokofiev's Second Piano Concerto. But first, some historical background, without which there would be no context for the fire that is, along with Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 2, the subject of today's post. Petrograd slash St. Petersburg in 1917. For the residents of what was then the capital city of the Russian Empire, Petrograd, better known as St. Petersburg, the year 1917 was a dangerous, passionate, heady, exhilarating, and ultimately tragic year. It was in March of 1917 that the horrific and ongoing sins of the Russian government under Tsar Nicholas II finally and forever came home to roost. At war since July 1914, the Tsarist government had shown itself to be utterly inept and corrupt, incapable of supplying adequate arms and food to its soldiers who died by the millions often forcing peasant conscripts into battle against the Austrian and German enemy without rifles. On March 8, 1917, food riots broke out in Petrograd. Troops were called out, but they refused to fire on the rioters. Instead, by the hundreds, they themselves mutinied and joined the rioters. It was anarchy. Seven days later, on March 15, 1917, Tsar Nicholas abdicated his throne, bringing to an end, 
304 years of Romanov family rule. On March 17, 1917, two days after Nicholas's abdication, Russia became a republic ruled by a temporary or provisional government. Sadly, and not for the last time, Russia's brief flirtation with the Republican government was not to last. The provisional government was, from day one, fatally flawed. It was far too moderate and far too closely associated with the Tsarist regime to be taken seriously by such far-left Marxist socialist parties as the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, and the Social Revolutionists. On April 16, 1917, Vladimir Lenin, born Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov, 1870-1924, and his Bolshevik homies rode into town. Lenin had been in exile in Zurich, Switzerland. In what turned out to be a foreign policy triumph, the German government facilitated Lenin's return to Russia, believing that his presence in St. Petersburg, then the capital of the Russian Empire, would further destabilize Russia and help bring the war in the East to its conclusion, which is exactly what happened. Promising the soldiers, peasants, and workers peace, land, and bread, the Bolsheviks quietly consolidated their power. On the night of November 6th and 7, 1917, Lenin and his Bolsheviks made their move. They took over the telephone switchboards, the railway stations, and the electric plants in Petrograd. The cruiser Aurora trained its guns on the Winter Palace, the headquarters of the provisional government. A quickly assembled Congress of Soviets declared the provisional government dead as dial-up and created in its place a Council of People's Commissars with Vladimir Lenin at its head. Leon Trotsky, 1879 to 1940, was named Commissar of Foreign Affairs, and the 38-year-old Joseph Stalin, 1878 to 1953, became the Commissar for Nationalities. All of these events were witnessed by an increasingly agitated, perhaps even an increasingly freaked out, Sergei Prokofiev. To say that World War I had put a crimp in Prokofiev's budding career as a composer and pianist is rather an understatement. The war began on July 28, 1914, just a couple of months after he graduated from the Petrograd Conservatory. As the only son of a widow, he was not called up into the military, which was a mercy for which we must be grateful, as Russia suffered nearly four million military deaths during the war. Some perspective. That four million military deaths was equal to the combined number of military deaths suffered by France, Great Britain, and Belgium. Nevertheless, during the war, Prokofiev, apolitical and concerned only with himself and his music, initially seems to have convinced himself, as he would do again in the 1930s, that the physical and political carnage in Russia had nothing in particular to do with him. 
the events in Petrograd slash St. Petersburg, starting in March 1917, put a kibosh on Prokofiev's ostrich routine and, leaving his mother behind in Petrograd to fend for herself, <laughs> such a nice boy, the 26-year-old Prokofiev got out of Dodge as quickly as he could, relocating initially to a resort in the Caucasus, far away from the revolution and the front lines. In 1918, Prokofiev left Russia entirely, first for the United States and then for France. He did not return permanently to what had by then become the Soviet Union until 1936. Back, please, to 1917. In his haste to leave his apartment in Petrograd, Prokofiev failed to pack up his one and only copy of the score, the manuscript score, of his piano concerto number two. It was a most unfortunate mistake, because at some point during the next few years, the score met its end. Depending upon the source, we are told that, quote, the score was unfortunately destroyed in a fire, unquote. Or, quote, this first version of the concerto was lost in a fire during the 1917 revolution, unquote. Or, quote, the score was destroyed in a fire following the Russian revolution, unquote. Or, the orchestral score apparently burned in a fire during the turmoil of the Russian Revolution, though the solo part remained with the composer and survived." Unquote. Whatever. It wasn't until 1923 that having moved to Paris, Prokofiev learned of the fate of his piano concerto number two. Prokofiev in Paris. We momentarily veer away from Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 2 in order to discuss his first couple of years in Paris for the light it sheds on Prokofiev the person. It was in 1923 that Prokofiev and his brand new bride, the Spanish singer Carolina Codina, 1897-1989, to known to all as Lina, moved to Paris and settled into an apartment on the top floor of a building on the Rue Charles Dickens in Passy, in the extremely tony 16th arrondissement, just south of the Trocadero and across the Seine from the Eiffel Tower. All sorts of revealing Prokofiev stories date to this period. Here are two. In order to support himself in Paris, Prokofiev decided to restart his career as a performer. This meant practicing the piano for hours at a time, something that Prokofiev's neighbors immediately beneath his apartment were not at all happy about. They called Prokofiev and Lina every day to complain about the noise. As we will discuss in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, Prokofiev played the piano hard, often like an 88-key drum set, no doubt exacerbating his neighbor's discomfort. Prokofiev, who had all the empathy and compassion of a brick, ignored his neighbor's complaints. So they complained to the building manager, who showed up at Prokofiev's door demanding that he stop. 
Lena Prokofiev recalled her husband's response, quote, All right, all right, you don't want to hear my music, but I have a right to do whatever I want in my apartment. Instead of playing music, I'll start hammering boxes together. Placing a box on the floor, he started banging on it with a hammer. That's how it ended. The neighbors threw up their hands and gave in." Unquote. Here's another story slash anecdote. At around the same time Prokofiev arrived in Paris, so did another Russian emigre composer, someone named Vladimir Dukelsky, 1903 to 1969. For our information, writing under the pen name Vernon Duke, a name suggested by George Gershwin, Dukelsky would go on to write such location-driven chestnuts as April in Paris and Autumn in New York. Dukelsky idolized Prokofiev and his music and wanted desperately to meet him. Dukelsky first approached his fellow Russian expat Serge Diaghilev for an introduction, who as founder and impresario for the Ballet Russe had worked with Prokofiev in 1915. But Diaghilev had had a bad experience working with Prokofiev and outright refused, telling Dukelsky that Prokofiev was, quote, an utter imbecile who always can be counted on to do the wrong thing, unquote. So instead, Dukelsky convinced the music critic Pyotr Suvchinsky, a mutual friend of his and Prokofiev's, to make the introduction. Suvchinsky agreed, and so Dukelsky arrived on the Rue Charles Dickens, there to meet a pianist and composer he'd idolized since he, Dukelsky, was a student at the Kiev Conservatory. According to Dukelsky, Prokofiev looked, quote, like a cross between a Scandinavian minister and a soccer player. His lips were unusually thick and they gave his face an oddly naughty look, rather like that of a boy about to embark on some punishable and therefore tempting prank. His pretty wife sang well and was a good housekeeper and mother, which didn't prevent Sergei from picking fights with her hourly and throwing her out of the room at the slightest provocation." Unquote. Oh yes, oh yes, Prokofiev was indeed a first-class jerk, something we'll discuss at greater length in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. It was there in Paris, in late 1923, that Prokofiev learned from his friends Boris Asafiev and Nikolai Mayaskovsky, who were still in St. Petersburg, that his manuscript score of his piano concerto number two was no more. Its fate as revealed by Harlow Robinson in Sergei Prokofiev, a biography, Viking, 1987, was, well, rather prosaic. Following the revolution, Prokofiev's apartment was appropriated by the Bolshevik-slash-communist government and turned into a communal apartment, housing heaven knows how many families. With the advent of the Russian Civil War, 1917 to 1922, shortages of every kind plagued the Russian population. 
Prokofiev's score was indeed consumed by flames, but not due to battle or a sudden conflagration. As Harlow Robinson tells it, quote, the apartment's new occupants had used it as fuel with which to cook an omelet, unquote. To cook an omelet, not even a stroganoff for a nice leg of lamb. Okay, that's ignoble. We can only hope that it was one big, delicious omelet and that it fed a lot of people. Having been informed that his piano concerto number two had perished, Prokofiev sat down and, using what sketches he had, and perhaps, as well, the piano part, he reconstructed the concerto. But in fact, he rewrote the concerto. Prokofiev later claimed that given the number of changes he had made in its reconstruction, the piece could actually be considered his fourth piano concerto, as by 1923, he had since completed and premiered his piano concerto number three, Opus 26, in 1921. This second version of Prokofiev's second piano concerto received its premiere in Paris on May 8, 1924. Prokofiev was again the soloist. The orchestra was conducted by Serge Kusevitsky. 1874-1951. When we return in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes Post, we will revisit both Prokofiev and his Piano Concerto No. 2 in much greater detail, particularly the controversies surrounding its premieres in 1913 and 1924. We'll cap things off with the recommendation of a superb recording. Until then, Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.